0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of
1: 94.9 CHRW.
2: Wait, wait, wait a second. Are you telling me
0: that you agreed with General Yeri's decision to execute his brother? Of course I agree. Yeri's brother was a traitor to the Trelawan government. The evidence is all circumstantial. Oh, it all comes down to a question of loyalty, my dear doctor. Yeri had to choose between protecting his brother and protecting the state. He chose the state, as would I every time. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. But then again, before you can be loyal to another, you must be loyal to yourself. And who can we thank for those misguided words of wisdom? Sarek of Vulcan? Actually, it was Bashir of Earth. With sentiments like those, you wouldn't last for five seconds on Cardassia, would you? Fishing again, Doctor? But assuming you're not a spy. Assuming? Then maybe you're an outcast. Or maybe I'm an outcast spy. Ah, How could you be both? I never said I was either.
3: (laughs) Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 17, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing, just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white
2: Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright
3: and welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join in on the conversation, or email us at justrightchrw@gmail.com. And of course, you can visit our archives all the time to get all the shows any time of day, 24 hours a day, at www.justrightmedia.org. Well, i got an interesting smorgasbord for you today. Near the end of the show, going to ask the question, is it justice? Going to give you an update on what's happening to Mark Emery. Getting down to the wire for him. I think it's all coming up next week, and we'll update you on that near the end of the show. Most of the show today got into a subject I didn't expect to get into, and believe it or not, um, you know, at the Toronto Film Festival, um, apparently they've made a biography of Hugh Hefner, and I thought I would take a look at the Playboy Philosophy, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear things in this Playboy Philosophy that, that you just never hear about in any of the bios, and I'd like to know if, if it's even in this new one that I haven't seen. But first, I want to get back to a little bit of the basics. Um, you know, I, I tr- try to once a year, you know, this, this show's called Just Right and um, before this year is out again i like to review at least once a year what i do mean by left and right what are those values and um now that september is approached and this is actually the last official summer show i'll be doing because next week we'll be into fall um you know sort of a back to basics approach and i thought the first thing we'd look at is the nature and purpose of government and you'll be surprised how much this ends up uh segueing into our next issue which is a playboy philosophy and I've compiled basically three people I respect very greatly on this who, who, who just have insights to the nature of government you won't read anywhere else. And that, of course, is Ayn Rand, as always, Isabel Patterson, her good friend, and Leonard Peikoff also associated all with the Objectivist Institute. Not, not Isabel Patterson, but, uh, and of course, Patterson and Rand had some arguments later in life. But however, on fundamental issues such as this, they certainly agreed a lot. In perhaps what was one of her most significant essays called The Nature of Government, written back in the 60s, Ayn Rand defined government as an institution that holds the exclusive power to enforce certain rules of social conduct in a given geographical area. Pretty accurate definition of just what a government is. And then, she, then, you know, in order to live in a civilized society, it's the initiation of physical force that has to be barred from society. She gets into a big, long... Uh, premise on how why that has to be so and uh, basically my conclusion is that a society can only be said to be civilized to the degree that physical force is legally barred from relationships and uh, so here I begin with what Ayn Rand had to say and I quote she says a physical force is to be barred from social re- relationships men need an institution charged with the task of protecting their rights under an objective code of rules This is the task of government, of a proper government, its basic task, its only moral justification, and the reason why people need a government. A government is the means of placing the retaliatory use of physical force under objective control and under objectively defined laws. The fundamental difference between private action and government action, a difference thoroughly ignored and evaded today, and remember she's writing in the 1960s, still true today, lies in the fact that a government holds a monopoly on the legal use of physical force. It has to hold such a monopoly since it's the agent of restraining and combating the use of force. And for that very same reason, its actions have to be rigidly defined, delimited, and circumscribed. If a society is to be free, It is its government that has to be controlled. Under a proper social system, a private individual is legally free to take any action he pleases, so long as he doesn't violate the rights of others, while a government official is bound by law in every official act. A private individual may do anything except that which is legally forbidden. A government official may do nothing except that which is legally permitted this is the means means of subordinating might to right and it was the original american concept of a government of laws and not of men and since the protection of individual rights is the only proper purpose of a government it's the only proper subject of legislation all laws must be based on individual rights and aimed at their protection all laws must be objective and objectively justifiable Men must know clearly, and in advance of taking an action, what the law forbids them to do, and why, what constitutes a crime, and what penalty they will incur if they commit it. The source of the government's authority is the consent of the government, quote, unquote. This means that the government is not the ruler, but the servant, or the agent, of its citizens. It means that the government, as such, has no rights except the rights delegated to it by the citizens for a specific purpose. There's only one basic principle to which an individual must consent if he wishes to live in a free civilized society, the principle of renouncing the use of physical force and delegating to the government the right of retaliatory force for the purpose of an orderly, objective, legally defined government. And now I switch to, uh, that's what Rand had to say, basically. Now, Isabel Patterson had a different way of looking at things. She saw everything as a form of energy. She was just very physics-oriented and very grounded in a way a lot of people weren't. And she literally said, you know, she said, and I'm quoting her here, she says, you know, physics has no name for the exact function which is delegated to government. Government is an end appliance and a dead end in respect of the energy it uses in other words she's saying that government's entirely consumptive you know it sucks the energy out of the economy and thus energy out of every living human being because it's not a productive entity think about that when you're thinking about all these bailouts that the government says it's you know breathing life into the economy when really it's strangling the patient right at the throat but uh, that's that's another issue for another day but but says Patterson uh, the actions of a human being depend on what he thinks which is a non-measurable factor people have a faculty for which no equivalent is found in the processes of inanimate nature man is self-starting he can inhibit himself science is aware that inanimate objects do not heed what is said to them nor care about intentions yet in the name of science has been used to carry the error one step further with the proposition that man is no more than a physical mechanism What is forgotten is the fact that even if regarded as a physical mechanism, man is a genuinely automatic machine, self-starting and self-acting, in the sense that no inanimate mechanism can be automatic. Initiative is life itself. Complete inhibition is death, yet a living creature incapable of inhibiting itself would speedily destroy itself. When civilized man builds a house, The plans must be laid out in the material assembled over a considerable period, and paid for by savings involving exchange of labor with many other persons. He must therefore impose restraints upon himself for objectives distant in time and needing to be directed through space. He lives in the past and the future, as well as in the present. His initiative will be wasted unless he also inhibits himself. And further, he must be able to count upon others to participate in the exchange to observe like long-term inhibitions. This is why savages have no occasion for formal government while it is necessary to civilization. For a civilized economy which consists of production and exchanges in a sequence extending through time and space, there must be an agency to witness long-term contracts and see that they are fulfilled. That is what government does. And all it can do. It is a prohibitory and expropriative agency. Government is a marginal requirement, necessarily only insofar as the individual inhibitory faculty is not exercised according to agreement and natural right, which means equal liberty. Beyond that differential, government is an enthronement of paralysis and death. Hence, the perversion of logic which affirms that the citizen exists only for the state and has no individual right to live, which is exactly what Garrick was saying in that opening clip from Deep Space Nine. And Patterson says, in fact, life can exist only in its own right. It's ridiculously futile for the state or anybody to order a man to live if his faculties fail him, nor can life be created by order. Government is an agency, not an entity. This has to be restated, for the simple meaning of the statement that the right to life and liberty are inalienable has been forgotten or deliberately obscured, for alienated means passing into the possession of another. Rights are by definition inalienable. Only privileges can be transferred. If one man's rights are infringed, no other man obtains them. On the contrary, all men are thereby threatened with a similar injury. And that's what Isabel Patterson has to say in her basic description of why we need a government. Leonard Peikoff, in his book, uh, The Philosophy of Ayn Rand, Objectivism, and he has a chapter in there called Government, and he added this. I thought this was kind of interesting because it sort of defines more what a right is. And he says, a right is a sanction to independent ac- action. The opposite of acting by right is acting by permission. If someone bores your pen, you set the terms of its use. When he returns it, no one can set the terms for you. You use it by right. By the way, that's the very example that Michael Korn tried to pull on me on the show we played earlier. Uh, he took the pen from me and said, you know, he thought I was some kind of uh, anarchist or libertarian. that, You know, I didn't think that there was a right to uh, defend myself that. Take the pen back. But um, explains Peakoff. A right is a prerogative that cannot be morally infringed or alienated. Factually, of course, criminals are possible. Innocent men can be robbed or enslaved. In such cases, however, the victim's rights are still inalienable. The right remains on the side of the victim. The criminal is wrong. If a man lived on a desert island, there would be no question of defining his proper relationship to others. Even if men interacted on some island but did so only at random, without establishing a social system, the issue of rights would still be premature. There would not yet be a context or concept, therefore, of any or any means of impl- implementing it. There would be no agency to interpret, apply, or enforce any kinds of agreements. But when men do decide to form or reform an organized society, however, when they decide to pursue systematically the advantages of living together, then they need the guidance of principle. That is the context in which the principle of rights arises. And then finally, just closing, Rand has this to say, and she says, observe that the basic principle, governing justice in all of these cases, it's the principle that no man may obtain any values from others without the owner's consent. Such in essence is the proper purpose of a government to make social existence possible to men, end quote. Now consider all of that in terms of what you see happening in our governments today. They, they operate, all of them, all the political parties, exactly on the opposite principle. You know, you you sit there and you think, uh, you know, are we being asked to consent to all this spending, to all the things they are spending, our money and our time and throwing our rights away? It's a frightening time we live in, folks, and, and, you know, it's the calm before the storm, I think, politically. We already see our finance minister trying to back out. He's starting to tell us, well, our economy's not doing as well as, you know, we've really been hoping for. Don't be getting your hopes up or anything like that but uh, that's a, there you go there, that's a basic of what government's about certainly didn't get into all the premises and other things that we've discussed on this show before but we certainly want to review those basics from time to time now we're going to take a quick break here for uh, Smile and a new subject coming up and that is Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Philosophy He's going to be telling you some things about that that you just probably never ever could have dreamed of we'll be back after this
4: very nice thank you caught me in my weekend clothes. Very nice. Look at this place. Fabulous. Hi, have Happy happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to you, Hefner, huh? Right away. This is fantastic, this place. I haven't seen a tent this size back here since the last time Anna Nicole Smith slept over. Hey! <laughs> Folks. <laughs> How you doing? This is great. I really love these parties. I love a Playboy party. Nothing like it. I have to admit, though, I've been to a lot of Playboy parties. I never once uh, hooked up with any of the Playmates. I did have sex with two of the monkeys. <laughs> so I got that going for me, and uh, I made out with a duck. So I'm doing okay. <laughs> uh, I want to congratulate half. Fifty years of this magazine started with only $600 of your own money, right? Nice job, buddy. Very nice. And I want to say sincerely, you know, this as well as I do. We need Playboy as much now as we did 50 years ago. We really do, honestly. Uh, there's a lot of jokes, a lot of people think this is just a sex magazine. We both know they're wrong. It's a magazine about sexual freedom, and it, it's a uh, thanks to you, Hefner, there's no shame in sex anymore. There's fun in sex. There's a personal empowerment, sexual empowerment for women. That's all thanks to you, Hefner, and the Playboy philosophy. God bless you, sir. Let's all raise a toast, everybody, and wish a happy anniversary to Playboy magazine. Happy Anniversary, Hefner. In
1: 1962, that work included the first pages of Hefner's most personal and passionate public statement, The Playboy Philosophy.
0: When I started The Playboy Philosophy, I only planned on doing one installment and then a second, and then I was hooked. The message was espousing a a set of values particularly related to sexual repression. To say that you could question the moral values related to sex and do it in a moral way. The morality of sex doesn't have much to do with how many people are in bed with you, what position you're using. Those are not the moral questions. The moral questions are how you feel about yourself and how you feel about the person, how you treat
1: one another. Real moral questions. As the philosophy grew, it began to reflect an increased political and social concern on the part of both Hefner and Playboy. No longer dedicating itself exclusively to the pursuit of pleasure, the magazine began to take stands on the Vietnam War, drugs, and civil rights. It also included extensive, thought-provoking interviews with key political figures like Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King.
0: We were successful enough so that people were listening, and of course, once the magazine became something more than entertainment, it became even more popular. It was the other half of who I was, and therefore, it became the other half of what Playboy became.
3: And that was from uh, A&E Biography on Hugh Hefner, uh, done about, I think, around 2003, in the clip you heard before uh... withdrew Carey, and it was done into playboy anniversary 50th anniversary which again was in two thousand and three since the magazine began november nineteen fifty three I actually got to see a first issue of playboy magazine came into city lights bookshop when we were down there years and years ago and playboy by the way was never released in canada when it came out because the censors were still hard at work up here in canada so i guess uh, Hefner's been in the news a lot lately, especially because of the Toronto International Film Festival, where apparently a film called Hugh Hefner, Playboy, Activist, and Rebel, had its world premiere at the Elgin Theatre there, and it has been produced by um a canadian filmmaker bridget berman who said she found a whole new dimension to the man in the mansion as it says in uh, i think this is a national post of september 8th and also the other article i referred to is in the london free press on september 12th so obviously this thing has been drawing a little bit of attention and um, this film on Hugh Hefner apparently takes a look at how his world of Playboy has shaped the reality of North America. You know, most, of the, most people see um, Playboy in a very uh, narrow light, and especially the, its non-readers, if I may say so. You know, you can't always tell a book by its cover, goes an old saying. Actually, I think you can tell a lot uh, about a book <laughs> by its cover, but not everything. And sometimes not even the most significant things. In the minds of many, Playboy has been associated with left-wing causes, you know, abortion, civil liberties, freedom of speech, free sex. Almost a left-wing sort of anything-goes, quote-unquote, anarchy kind of a feeling. That's that's the sense you get from a lot of people. I think it's understandable, since this is how the magazine has generally been portrayed in the media, especially given its association with naked women and the lavish and hedonistic lifestyle of its magazine's founder, Hugh Hefner. But I think it's a simplistic mind who thinks that Hefner's fortunes were a mere consequence of publishing a magazine that featured centerfold of nude women, as if that were the automatic formula for success in and of its own. Of course, the founding and driving force behind Playboy magazine is Hugh Hefner. And if you want to discover Hugh Hefner, the intellectual... And why Playboy was so successful and continued to be beyond that age when, you know, just even being able to to publish a naked picture of anybody was a big deal. You really have to read the words, you know. Don't just look at the pictures, because it's the words and the philosophy behind Playboy magazine that have made it such a success. And we'll be taking a closer look at that philosophy in just a moment. Now, I'd be willing to bet that that most people think that the Playboy philosophy is a philosophy practiced by hedonistic playboys, you know, hedonists looking for consenting shedonists as the old joke went and uh, but the playboy philosophy is not about the philosophy of any given so-called you know individual given playboy the playboy philosophy is the operating editorial perspective of playboy magazine itself it's the magazine's philosophy and that that a magazine should even have a philosophy i think is a remarkable thing in and of itself and 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 let alone put it in writing And yet I'll I'll bet practically none of you have the slightest idea of what Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine are all about, despite all the stuff you hear in the media. Because good old Hef has done a good, pretty superb job at distracting everybody while simultaneously making it very explicit, not the sex, but the philosophy of what the magazine is all about. I only wish there were some place I could, you know, go to see uh, the philosophy of the economist, the economist philosophy, or the London Free Press philosophy, or the National Post philosophy, wouldn't that be nice? To, you know, expressed in unambiguous ways. Now, remember again, I'm talking, we're talking about the philosophy of the publication, not any particular philosophy that may be expressed in the publication, which is a different thing perhaps entirely especially in a liberal magazine like Playboy, which which you would see opinions expressed on all sides of the political uh, spectrum. In fact, even Ayn Rand was in Playboy magazine interviewed March 64, which happens to be, interestingly enough, just around the time that Hefner was finishing up his Playboy philosophy, and I wonder if there might have been some kind of influence. Now, you know... Uh, you know from its humor to its editorials and articles articles grammar editing style language if you look at playboy that way you're going to find a very high class magazine uh, it, it's very articulate it's not um and, and if you were to remove the small percentage of pages that featured nude photography of women from the average copy of playboy magazine you would discover you'd be left with a very literary magazine that promotes a free society in every aspect regarding sex politics and religion In fact the average cover of playboy i think is uncommonly tame compared to even the covers of the women's magazines you might see at the grocery checkout Uh, playboy doesn't indulge in the crass language of its perceived competitors it's far more small c conservative than you might imagine Uh, socially liberal economically conservative and politically and philosophically capitalist In terms of the Playboy philosophy, the naked ladies are just the wrapping of the magazine. And when you remove that wrapping, only then will you be able to discover what the magazine's really all about. And that's freedom, capitalism, and living in a consensual society. Now, at a time when I wasn't even old enough to legally buy a copy of Playboy the playboy philosophy originally started appearing as an 18-part serial in the early 1960s and by part 11 get the I was was downloading these offline the other night and I couldn't when is this going to end you know Uh, by part 11 Hefner notes he says the playboy philosophy is sometimes rambling a rambling disorganized discourse because the writing of each new installment brings forth a succession of ideas and feelings that vie for expression we put them down as they occur to us when we have concluded the series, we'll probably edit it into a more disciplined form as a book, but for magazine publication, this more direct, organic approach suits our purpose, since the philosophy is intended as a living statement of our beliefs, our insights, and our prejudices. Quote. So I guess Hefner was the first blogger at a time when there was no such concept. And again, I can't help but feel he was influenced by Ayn Rand, not only with respect to politics and philosophy, but also with respect to a sense of life that admired the great potential of mankind as an achiever and as a producer and as a hero. In fact, in installments 2, 3, and 4 of the Playboy philosophy, which deal mostly with the kind of economic and social system we should be operating under, Hefner begins with a section uh, entitled, get this, The Uncommon Man, and I'll read you this little bit here. He says, and this is Hefner talking, quote, and remember, this is written 1961, 62-ish, might be off a bit. Within the score years of this century, the American personality has undergone as drastic and dramatic a change, change as the country itself. The first 30 years of the 20th century were characterized by our unbounded faith in ourselves both individually and as a nation. We were enjoying the results of the Industrial Revolution, and if the streets were not literally paved with gold, that was only a technicality. It was a time of confidence and enthusiasm. It was a crazy, romantic, wonderful time, when most men believed they could lift themselves by their own bootstraps, even if they didn't yet own a pair of boots. Boys hungrily consumed the books of Horatio Algier. He wrote 119, or as one critic put it, one book rewritten 118 times (laughs) that sold an almost unbelievable 250 million copies with titles like Sink or Swim, Strive and Succeed, Do or Dare, Fame and Fortune. They told a youngster that success, yes, and fame and fortune too, could be his no matter how humble his beginning if he was industrious, honest, and had faith in himself his God, and his country. Nothing was impossible. Any boy could grow up to be president of the U.S. or of U.S. Steel. The United States was the golden land of opportunity and freedom for its own people and for the rest of the world as well. America's promise was spelled out in the words inscribed on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these the homeless tempest-tossed to me i lift my lamp beside the golden door these were the years of the uncommon man when uncommon ambition and deeds were the rule rather than the exception. These were the years of the great national heroes, both fictional and real, as cockeyed excited as a kid over a young man's climbing into a single-motor airplane and flying across the Atlantic alone. The era reached an apex in the decade now fondly remembered as the Roaring Twenties. It was a yeasty time, a time of innovation and adventure, when new notions and ideas were accepted almost as quickly as they were born, a period of important growth in science and in the arts. It ended with the stock market crash late in 1929. Now he moves on to another section called The Uncommon Man. And, you know, he he was a product of the Great Depression, and he says, you know, the ten years of the bleak depression that followed the Roaring Twenties came as a brutal and sustained shock to the national psyche. Some saw in it a terrible retribution for the years before, a sort of protracted hangover from an economic binge. It was nothing of the sort, of course, but the generation which came to mature during the Depression suffered the same. In place of individual initiative, an emphasis on accomplishment and education, attainment, a faith in self, and in our economic system, a curiosity about the new and different, Americans became increasingly concerned with security, the safe and the sure, the certain and the known. Instead of helping people sort out their ideas and their ideals during this time of uncertainty and confusion, a great many newspapers, magazines, and movies actually pandered to the public's already growing prejudices. If if it was especially difficult to get ahead during the Depression, then the popular press was perfectly willing to persuade people that what they already had was plenty good enough. You hear that in the paper today. Look at what Sarkovsky's doing over in France. It's, It's literally the same situation. After all, why make a man quest after things he can probably never achieve? If his aspirations were much beyond his hopes of fulfilling them, he would only become frustrated and unhappy. So the newspapers, magazines, movies, and radios, too, set about making Americans satisfied with their lot, complacent with the status quo. Some might argue that if you curb the nation's initiative, it could cause incalculable damage. But that was an abstract philosophical idea, and the problems of the time were the only reality. The satisfied, complacent, relatively initiative-free social order was achieved in in several ways. First, the mass media made the wealthy appear to be shallow, ignorant, foolish, and unappealing as possible. Admittedly, making wealth itself unattractive would really take some doing, but the press and films did a damned impressive job of the next best thing. The Sunday magazine section of the Hearst Papers of the 30s had a fine old time convincing us that most of society, the socially prominent and the financially well-to-do, were either scoundrels or scandalous, empty-headed nimcompoops, or both. The wealthy, sounds like today, isn't it? The wealthy, as depicted in the mass media, almost always accumulated their money, ill-gotten gains, in some underhanded or slightly suspect way, or else it was inherited. And in either case, it was clearly undeserved and unearned. There just wasn't very much interest in publishing stories of self-made men who prospered like the heroes of Algier and Standish at the start of the century through the application of pluck, perseverance, and honest hard work. A catchy label is always helpful in more clearly establishing a desired identity for a group, and the press came up with a fine one. Quote, the idle rich. By subverting our faith in ourselves, both as individuals and as a nation, by shaking our faith in the superiority of the free enterprise system, we managed to bring the greatest country in the world to a near standstill. By again stressing many of the basic tenets upon which this nation was founded, we have begun forcefully to move ahead once more. If any of us were ever in serious doubt about the relative merits of group-oriented, collectivist socialism, or communism versus self-oriented individual initiative, free enterprise capitalism, we've witnessed irrefutable evidence of the strengths and weaknesses of both over the past generation. Setting aside the social significance of a free society for the moment, and of course you don't want to do that, and the fact that no government that places its emphasis on the importance of group good over individual good can long remain free, capitalism has proven itself to superior economic system in country after country since the war. It's not because of any inherent flaw in the American capitalism that Russia has been able to catch up with us in many years over the past 20 years. Remember, this is written in the early 60s. Quite the opposite. It is because this country drifted dangerously in the direction of socialism during the 30s and 40s that we began to falter and fall behind. Several nations in post-war Europe have found a new economic strength through capitalism, and much of Western Europe is enjoying an unparalleled prosperity because of having the free enterprise system in- taken the free enterprise system to the international level with the common market. America, on the other hand, has stifled her natural growth through initiative-inhibiting taxes and restrictive legislation regarding the roles of labor and management in business. Truly dynamic evidence of the relative strength in the two economic systems can be seen in East and West Berlin today, which of course the wall has fallen since. The contrast between the two halves of this once whole city, one rebuilding since the war's end under a democratic free economy, and the other under a totalitarian communist regime, says more than any economic theorist or political philosopher ever could. And the wall with East Berliners risking death to scramble over it and under it to West Berlin and freedom says more about the social worth of the two systems than any words could as well. Fidel Castro has all but destroyed the Cuban economy with his brand of communist socialism. And while red China falters and fails in its attempt to duplicate with communism what America achieved through capitalism, Japan has moved ahead to unprecedented wealth since the end of the Second World War by patterning its economy directly under the United after the United States. As the limitations of communism become clearer, Russia has been subtly changing her own economic system, supplying capitalist incentives as required. But Russia remains a totalitarian state and suffers the inherent weaknesses of all dictatorships. No nation can enjoy the full benefits of a free economy and the free enterprise system if the nation's people are themselves not truly free. Thus, freedom itself is the spark that a free competitive society requires to drive it at peak efficiency. And that is why America can regain its position of world prominence and leadership if it never again loses sight as a nation of the fundamental faith in itself, belief in its uncommon citizens, and in freedom, and in the free enterprise system that made it great in the beginning. The individual, remember this is Hugh Hefner talking, Playboy magazine, keep that in mind. The individual remains the all-important element in our society, the touchstone against which all else must be judged. The individual's very individuality, his right to look, think, and act differently from his fellows as he chooses, without, of course, interfering with the similar rights of others, supplies the divergent, interacting components that produce progress. No group is necessarily more important than each individual member of the group. Group thought is not superior to individual thought, and neither is group taste. It is our feeling moreover that actions taken to allegedly benefit almost no one group or another, the taxpayer, the working man, the consumer, society, the nation, too often benefit almost no one. So-called group good is sometimes a vagary that shields an activity that could not be justified on any individual basis. All totalitarian concepts place a particular group, a race, a religion, a class, a country, ahead of the individual. Thus, the political extremes of right and left, socialism and communism on the one hand, and fascism and Nazism on the other, have more in common with each with the other than they do with democracy, whose systems of checks and balances places it at the political center. Here's an interesting statement. Einstein's theory of curved space would seem to apply to the political universe as well as the physical one. The opposite extremes of political dogma eventually meet and i guess that's his way of saying left and right are the same thing and then finally it is not enough to recognize that a nation is no more important than the sum of all its people a country is no more important than each of its citizens taken singly and apart from all the rest for only through concern and respect for each member of society can the whole of society hope to achieve its ultimate potential and that is straight from the playboy Philosophy. We're going to take a break now. It's the bottom of the hour. We come back. We're going to talk about what Playboy thinks about sex, about religion, and a few other things.
1: What your magazine is doing is saying that the sexual revolution was also in the name of women.
0: And yes. that is I think sexual costs. emancipation and female okay. emancipation I go hand think in that. hand.
1: The role that you have selected for women is degrading to women because you choose to see women as sex objects. You make really? them look
0: like animals, yes. Women aren't bunnies, they're not rabbits, they're Love human them. beings. Big the big day box. that you are willing to come out here with a cotton tail attached to your rear end... We've been accused, obviously, of exploiting women, exploiting sex. I think Playboy exploits sex, you know, I just think exploit is an unfortunate word. Playboy exploits sex like Sports Illustrated exploits sports. We would be attacked from the right. But as the years went on, all of a sudden the attacks started coming from the left, who we considered our friends. Now, this was a real shocker for us.
1: That is the place where feminism got totally off track because the, the real direction of the, of the liberation of women of my generation was toward Playboy. It wasn't away from it. So right from the start, I'm afraid, that contemporary feminism got in the grip of this puritanical anti-porn wing which has a great trouble with visual images. They are deeply puritanical, not just about sexuality, but because they cannot tolerate nudity.
0: I'm Mike Wallace. The show is Nightbeat. Tonight we go after Hugh Hefner, editor and publisher of Playboy magazine. Hugh, we checked this month's issue and found 20 pictures of girls in various stages of undress. Isn't that really what you're selling, kind of a a high-class, dirty book? No, I don't think so at all. There's an important distinction here. Um, Sex always will be an important part of the book because sex is probably the single thing that uh... uh men are most interested in. We're pretty honest about it, and straight about it, and uh... we don't hide it. I think this is a pretty healthy thing. Oh, with this I think that you'll agree it's a sniggering kind of sex, it's a lascivious kind of sex, it certainly isn't a healthy approach to sex. You We suggest that it is. I would not only suggest that, I would say rather strongly, we consider it a pretty healthy attitude. Now here
2: are two guys who read Playboy just for the articles. Let's have a big hand for Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, thank you, girls. Thank you. Nice. Hey, buddy. Happy 50th birthday. You look... You look like hell, actually. Yeah, no, no, no it's look, not. It's he looks not like his, crap. Adam, it's not his He's birthday. He's got to be well into his 80s. It's actually the magazine, Playboy Magazine's birthday, that you've got it wrong. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm still going to give you a handy. All right. I don't think I'll need it. Hey, you, you. It's so great to see you here with your beautiful daughters. <laughs> and, um, you know, Playboy Magazine, it's... Um, it's done so much. It's not just a magazine. I mean, really, uh, it's been a paragon of, of free speech and um, spank, and breaking down rag, barriers. And most importantly, masturbating. Yes, right, masturbating, yes. I think, number one. I'm an atheist, so it's my Bible. <laughs> it's true, he is. Uh, he, he quotes the Playboy magazine. Who's your favorite bunny of all time, Adam? Uh, I would say Patty Farinelli. Patty Farinelli. 19- late 70s i was but a lad she was but a boob it was great i lost my virginity to the august 1986 issue of playboy magazine yes i also um i got my genitals caught in a staple it was a uh, it was a painful experience but rewarding and momentous in my life let me say a couple of quick things uh one is remember for the 40th anniversary jimmy when We were dressed as mermaids and sitting poolside. We've come a long way, haven't we? (laughs) Your big, fat, hairy belly slopping over your tail suit. You've done so much. You've given my mother something to search for in my bedroom. And you've taken your place, not just among the upper echelon of Americans, but underneath my mattress as well. And God bless you. Another 50 years. And... um, I hope to still be reading Playboy magazine when I need drugs to get an erection. God bless you.
3: And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. That was, of course, from the Playboy 50th anniversary show on A&E back in 2003 when it was originally done. You know, it's a funny thing the type of humor and the reaction of the public the playboy magazine is in so many ways almost a consequence of the very puritanism that hefner found to be so objectionable now i just want to look at some other parts of the playboy philosophy that don't have to deal uh with uh, economy and state which is what we dealt with earlier and i was very surprised at how much of the philosophy was occupied by that i thought most of it would be the sex stuff but it wasn't and he speaks on in terms of quantity, but uh, I can't get into the whole sexual detail. I think I might do that in a future show because Hefner gets into some fascinating historical references. I might get to one today just to give you a, a concept of why he thinks the way he does. But here's very simple freedom of speech. This is from the Playboy Philosophy. Yeah, this is probably the shortest section. Quote, the right of the individual to speak and write what is on his mind, to express himself freely, and without fear of any action against him by government, does does not allow for any exceptions. It is time enough for the rightful purpose of civil government, wrote Thomas Jefferson, for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against the peace and good order. Our speech and our press cannot be half free, or they are not truly free at all. And that's basically where they stand on that. Now, of course, uh, Hefner grew up in a very religious uh, family and had a very conservative attitude towards everything, despite, you know, what you see in Playboy. In fact, that may very well be a reaction to conservatism. But he talks about religious freedom, and he has a section called Religious Freedom Reconsidered. And he said that, you know, how Playboy has been pointing out that no nation can be said to have true religious freedom unless it possesses not only the freedom of, but also freedom from religion. There is nothing sacrilegious in this viewpoint, writes Hefner. It is a cardinal concept in our democracy and one that religious and patriotic founding fathers took great care to spell out in both the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They recognize that a complete separation of church and state was the only certain way of assuring that this country's religion and its government would remain free, one from the other. A free democratic society and organized religion need not be in conflict but neither are they grounded on the same bedrock. Religion is founded on faith and a belief in its own absolutes. A democracy requires that men rely upon reason and the relative nature of truth, the acceptance of the the notion that ultimate truth is unknown and that what we observe as truth today may give way to a better truth tomorrow. Kept separate and distinct, our own particular religion and our government can function in harmony we can be both religious and good citizens at the same time. But if either power is allowed to intrude into areas rightfully the the domain of the other, an erosion of our most fundamental rights has begun and will be, to that extent, less free. Considering the emphasis that our Founding Fathers placed upon religious freedom when writing the Constitution and Bill of Rights and the continuing lip service given the concept today, there is a real irony in the extent to which various religious pressures and prejudices have infiltrated our laws, our court decisions, and the running of many of our cities and states, and innumerable secular aspects of daily life. This strange state of affairs is only understandable when we remember that most of our deeply rooted traditions come from Europe and that throughout European history, church and state have been intimately intervolved. It matters not at all that history thus supplies centuries of documentation on the evil abuses that may result when religion and government are not kept separate. Cultural traditions exist on a nearly subconscious level in a society, and they cannot be extirpated by logic alone. Though many of the first settlers came to America to escape religious persecution, they were soon practicing themselves what they had left Europe to avoid. Early American Puritanism required the observance of a rigid religious dogma that permeated every aspect of life, and the Puritans had little respect or tolerance for any beliefs other than their own. Dancing on the Sabbath meant a night in the stocks or a session on the ducking stool. Heretics and witches, those who espoused unpopular beliefs or acted too peculiarly, were hung. Trial by jury was outlawed in Connecticut and several other New England colonies. Only church elders could vote or hold office. Civil law was drawn directly from the Puritan interpretation of holy scriptures. The prejudice and prudery prudery, bigotry, and boobery of Puritanism did have one unintentionally beneficial effect, however. The extreme importance of our founding fathers placed upon the separation of church and state. But while most Americans in the time of the Revolution fervently favored this newfound freedom, the roots of religious Puritanism thrived and spread underground with two strokes, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. These first American patriots cut down the twisted tree of Puritanism, and all other forms of overpowering religious oppression, but the roots remained alive in our cultural earth. And he writes about how during the Dark Ages, the medieval church dominated almost every level of European society. Many of the church leaders were negatively obsessed with sex to a degree unknown in early Christianity, and this anti-sexuality was perpetuated by both ecclesiastical and the church-influenced secular law. It might have been expected that the Reformation would have produced a freer society, but as we have seen, it had no such effect. Many of the original settlers in America left the old world to escape religious persecution, so it might be supposed that here, finally, man would seek the personal, moral, and religious freedom he had so long been, that had been so long denied him. Indeed, our own founding fathers took seriously the lesson to be learned from the centuries of religious tyranny in Europe and gave us a constitution and bill of rights that guaranteed separation of church and state, that they might both be free. And Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence of each individual's inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Gee, where have we been hearing all this before? But how successful have we been in protecting these ideals, asks Hefner? Just how personally free is each one of us in modern America? The dream of individual freedom persists, but are we actually allowed to live our own lives, rejoice our liberty, and pursue our personal concepts of happiness, limited only by the extent that we infringe upon the like rights of others? Incredible as it should seem, and despite all constitutional guarantees to the contrary, we do not enjoy a true separation of church and state in the U.S. today. In fact, I did a whole show on that just not too long ago. And uh, each citizen, he says has a right to expect that the laws of his government have been established and will be enforced in a rational manner, consistent with the aims and protections of the Constitution. But many of the laws are not based on such premise. They have evolved instead from old ecclesiastical laws, from religious beliefs and dogma, to which some of our citizens subscribe and many others do not. And then, of course, he—he he, he just I tell you 18 parts. There's a lot of this. Just want to comment one last thing. He's talking about religion and sex, and he, and he thought very interesting. Didn't know this. Um, he's talking about the concept of virginity, and this is a whole subject in and of itself. But I mean, I'm, I'm t- subject. I mean, uh, the Playboy philosophy on sex, and it's the one I avoided today. If you notice. But he said this about uh, this people's understanding of where the concept of virginity came from. He says, though it's not generally recognized, the concept of virginity as a virtue in women is actually anti-female in origin, derived from a period when women were thought of as property, owned first by their fathers and later by their husbands. As Roger Westcott uh, Riley observed, it is far from flattering to use the fair sex to treat its members as saleable commodities with only two possible labels, used or unused. The term virgin did not mean to the classical world what it means to us. The early Romans distinguished between virgo, an unmarried woman, and virgo intacta, a woman who had never known a man. The same distinction was made by the Greeks. To them, a virgin was a woman who had retained her personal autonomy by not submitting herself to the restrictions of marriage. Virginity was more a social and psychological state than a physical one. It was the married woman who had lost her independence through matrimony who was no longer considered a virgin. Indeed, it was believed that sexual relations with a god magically restored virginity. And he talked about all the ancient history of this. But that's all we can talk about on uh, in terms of, uh, you know... Playboy philosophy, but you know, I think maybe Playboy is more disliked, not because of its attitudes on sex, but because of its attitudes on freedom and capitalism. Now a quick break and we'll be back with just a very quick update on what's happening to Mark Emery. Even though he has officially
1: stepped down as chairman of Playboy Enterprises, Hugh Hefner continues to play a very important role in the empire he created. And as the magazine and its founder face the new millennium, Heff looks back with pride at his role in fostering nearly a half century of unprecedented social change.
0: I believe it was the London Times several years ago that described him as one of a thousand most influential individuals in the history of the world.
1: Hugh Hefner's legacy is simply that he is one of the principal architects of the modern sexual revolution. He puts a higher premium on sharing theory,
0: kind of extended family type experiences that's how I judge you know my father and his work and his values and his actions
1: I think that uh, he'd probably like to be remembered as uh, somebody who uh,
0: made a difference in his world and a difference for the better as wild as my dreams were when I was a kid I could not have imagined the life that I was going to be living I remain in touch with the boy who dreamed the dreams and I love that kid. The single driving force in my life is looking for that perfect world where the words of the songs are true, where you are given unquestioning, non-judgmental, total love. I've spent my life looking for that world and uh, it's been a wonderful adventure. Odo, but I consider you as dear to me as my brother.
1: (laughs) I've seen how well you treat him. Odo, look at me.
0: Look at me. I'm on my knees. I'm begging you. I don't care why you do it. Pick any reason you want.
1: But please,
0: let Natima and the others go. All right, I'll do it. You will? But not for you. Turning Hogue and Raquelin over to the Cardassians would mean their deaths. I've read their files, and nothing they've done warrants that kind of punishment. I'll free them, Quark, but only in the name of justice.
3: Justice? That was going to be my next suggestion. (laughs) Yeah, that was going to be his next suggestion. Is it just to send Mark Emery to jail in the United States? You know, I found out, just got an update. We did a show on this a couple weeks ago. Found out apparently this Monday, September 21st, Mark Emery will be sentenced. And on September 28th, the following Monday, he will be jailed. Interestingly enough, um, here in Canada, for about two or three weeks, as he awaits Canada's Minister of Justice to process his extradition papers to the USA and uh, you know i think if the minister of justice were actually just in this case and was looking at it from a point of view of justice he would not be sending Mark Emery to the United States. Of course, Mark's going down there for selling, uh, purportedly selling uh, pot seeds online, which all kinds of people are doing all over the country in the United States. Marijuana is sold legally in California. There's over 600 outlets in the city of Los Angeles alone, uh, accounting for a business of 1. something billion dollars there just alone. States like Massachusetts and others are legalizing pot, and here's Mark Emery going to be extradited from Canada to go sit in a jail because. He was selling seeds online, uh, you know. When they busted him, he had no money, no drugs, no lo- nothing. He's just not that kind of person. So basically, what I understand, Mark's hoping that Canadians will help accelerate the process of his repatriation, so that he can serve most of his jail sentence in a Canadian jail. Um, and he said this. It's interesting. He says, quote, the United States government has already agreed not to oppose my transfer to a Canadian jail. And that was interesting. But the Canadian government under the conservatives had stopped repatriating Canadian prisoners in the United States, calling them threats to domestic security and implying they're even terrorists of sort. So the Conservative government has gotten very reluctant to bring Canadian prisoners back to Canada, and that's something we'll have to lobby them to do. So if you want to write a letter to your MP, MPP, one way or the other, if you don't like Mark Emery, tell them that too. Or write to the Senate, because the law has already gone through, uh, one of the bad laws has gone through uh, um, the Commons already, and that was a bill that makes mandatory minimum sentencing on very minor uh, drug offenses, the law, which we talked about on this show. But that's it for today, folks. We've got to roll. We hope you'll join us again next week on our journey in the right direction. Hey, until then, you be right, act right, think right, stay right, and take care. Fade into color, color it to black and white. Under
2: the clothes, everything will be all right. My neighbors hate me. I've been living there for
0: three months. None of them will say a word to me. Then last week I'm stuffing a body in the dumpster and everybody wants to yak, yak, yak.
4: <laughs> Find out you're a killer, they want to get on your good side.
0: <laughs> Got more muffin trays than I know what to do with, I'll tell you that.